Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of our podcast series called Catching the Last Wave. I'm Giulio Fabris and I will be your host today. Our guest for this podcast episode is Dr. Mahendra Kumar. Dr. Mahendra is a senior climate change specialist with wide experience in climate change, development, energy and environment programs in Asia Pacific and Africa. He's currently Honorary Associate Professor at the Institute of Climate Change, Energy and Disaster Solution at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University in Canberra and a Honorary Research Fellow with the Pacific Center for Environment and Sustainable Development at the University of South Pacific, USP. He has a distinguished career as an academic, as well as working for governments, regional and international organizations on technical and policy issues in climate change. He is on the UNFCCC roster of experts and regularly participates in reviews and assessments of national and technical reports. He continues to represent governments and civil society organizations at the UNFCCC and IPCC meetings. Today, with Dr. Mahendra, we will focus on the latest IPCC report published in August and especially on what does it mean for the Pacific region. So without further delay, let's start this exciting episode and let's find out together how climate change is affecting and will affect the security and well-being of Pacific people. Thank you, Mahendra, for being here with us today. It's an honor to have you as a guest for our podcast, and we're looking forward to hearing your contribution as an expert on climate change and especially for the Pacific reason. So let me start with an introductory question. If you could please tell us about your work on climate change, climate risk and security in the Pacific region. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to share my views. I call, call myself an independent expert on, on climate change, which means that currently I'm not formally working for any specific entity. I hold honorary positions at the Institute of Climate Change Energy Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University in Canberra, as well as at the Pacific Center for Sustainable Development at the University of the South Pacific in Fiji. These platforms actually provide me the opportunity to collaborate in research, support students, and participate in academic activities. This is really because most of my career I have been in academia, teaching and researching in environment and applied physics, mostly on the technical aspects. My first foray into intergovernmental work, uh, including policy, was when I was seconded to SPREP, South Pacific Regional Environment Program, as their first international negotiations officer for climate change. And of course, that position provided me the opportunity to attend uh, UNFCCC conference of parties and related meetings. I was also part of many regional projects in climate change. In fact, one of the first projects uh, was a, a regional project where all the Pacific countries were reporting under the United Nations Framework Convention of Climate Change on what they're doing about climate change. And uh, subsequent to that, I also had stints with uh, UNEP, uh, United Nations Environment Program in Africa, Nairobi, where I was the technical expert looking at uh, climate change issues, particularly reporting a national communications, national adaptation program for action and technology needs assessment. I also worked at the Asian Development Bank and for a period with the government of Australia when they first set up their Ministry of Climate Change. I have been oscillating between these sorts of um, positions as well as universities. I, I went back to Fiji National University in West Fiji where I, I set up uh, centers of excellence in, in climate change and, and environment. In the, in the region, I have been the climate 
diplomacy advisor for the Marshall Islands government, uh, director of climate change for Fiji when climate change was as part of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and was the climate change advisor for the Pacific Island Development Forum. And one of the highlights of my assignment at PIDF was the declaration, the Suva Climate Change Declaration in the lead up to the Paris meeting in 2015. And of course, the Suva Climate Change Declaration was really a clarion call by the Pacific countries, the leaders as well as civil society to try and keep the temperature within one and a half degrees and, and reduce use of fossil fuels and so on. I've had many other assignments in the Pacific um, developing INDCs. This is the National Determined Contributions for countries like RMI, Tuvalu, Kiribati, Timor-Leste. And uh, recently I have been uh, doing some work in Marshall Islands, you know, looking at the strategic plans, looking at some implementation activities uh, relating to the NDCs. And I have also been honored to be part of RMI's Marshall Islands delegation as well as other delegations in the Pacific. Uh, at, at various meetings of UNFCCC and IPCC. Thank you, Mahendra, for this comprehensive overview of your past experience on climate change and climate risk in the region. It's uh, great to have you here. It shows us that you are one of the prominent experts in the region, and it's great to have you here. So let me go on with my second question. And uh, as I mentioned before, we would like to focus on the, the latest IPCC report published in August. This IPCC report has been defined by the UN Secretary General as a code red for humanity. So can you please briefly highlight the most relevant takeaways of the report, especially regarding the Pacific region. As far as the Pacific is concerned, the IPCC report actually provides some some very stark and, and dire warnings in terms of the trends and in terms of the projections for, for the various parameters which are going to impact on the region. Let me answer this question by looking at four issues. The first one is to do with temperature. The world is likely to exceed two degrees centigrade temperature if the greenhouse gas emissions does not decline by 2015. As we all know, the monthly average for carbon dioxide concentration is an all-time high. Actually, it hasn't been higher for two million years at about 450, 420 parts per million. And for the Pacific, what this means is increased heat stress, which is harmful. This also predicted to be more heat wave events, which are going to be more frequent, of longer duration, and of higher intensity. And in fact, as the trend stands, the temperature is likely to increase by greater than one and a half degrees in the early 2030s. We already have seen a rise of 1.1 degrees centigrade. And again, these temperatures are not going to be uniform throughout the region. There are geographical differences. For example, in the Western Pacific, the temperature is projected to rise by anywhere between 2 and 4.5 degrees centigrade. So that is the situation as far as temperature is concerned. For rainfall, which is another very important parameter, the Western and Equatorial Pacific will be wetter and the extreme rainfall events are likely to become more frequent of the order of about 7% per degree rise in temperature. Now, what this means is the higher temperatures will cause more evaporation, and hence there will be a decline in freshwater availability. In fact, the freshwater availability will also decline due to salt water intrusion from sea level rise, as we will see later on. In fact, there is one in two chances of drought. So in spite of the more intense rainfalls, the availability of freshwater 
will be a major issue for the Pacific Island countries. If we now look at the, the oceans and coasts, the Pacific Islands, of course, are large ocean states, and the IPCC predicts that the once-in-100-year extreme sea level events will become more frequently in about quarter of the Pacific region by 2050. Marine heat waves will increase in frequency, duration, and intensity, and it's predicted that by 2015, Pacific shorelines may retreat by as much as 40 meters. If we look at the sea level rise projections, which are quite dire and, and very important for the Pacific Island countries. By 2050, the sea level rise predicted, which is already logged in, no matter what we do, is between 0.10 to 0.25 meters, 10 and 25 centimeters. But according to projections up to 2100, the low emission pathway, which means if the world were to emit according to a low emission trajectory, which is not happening, the sea level will rise by between 0.28 to 0.55 meters. But if the emissions follow a high emissions trajectory, which is what's happening quite right now, the sea level will rise from anywhere above 0.6 to above 1 meter. And by 2150, the, the figures are 0.5 to 1 meter for the low emission trajectory and 1 to nearly 2 meters for the high level trajectory. So the significant thing about the current levels of, of, of sea level rise, 0.15 to 0.25, is higher than pre-industrial times. And the sea level rise will lead to extreme coastal events, uh, again, marine heat waves, shoreline retreat, ocean acidification, uh, which will become more frequent and intense than previously anticipated by IPCC. And finally, the weather and climate extremes would become much more frequent, much more intense. And the Pacific is projected to face fewer but more intense cyclones. They will be less frequent in the western and eastern northern Pacific, but more frequent in the subtropical central Pacific. As I mentioned, the extreme rainfall events would intensify by 7% per degree, and this will lead to more storm surges and, and heat stress. And as observed, the sea level rises will, will increase the frequency and intensity of storm surges, more coastal inundation, and of course, oceans, water will intrude into other fresh water supplies. Thank you so much, Mahendra. I do agree it's a very stark scenario. The latest IPCC report highlighted that there are no doubts anymore about that. And also another thing that uh, came out from this report is that uh, humans are to blame on the changing patterns and changing climate. So we will talk about that later. But yeah, thank you for highlighting all of this. Very interesting uh, for our audience to know more, especially about the Pacific and how changing climate will affect, you know, the weather patterns that you talk about all these extreme events and etc. So thank you for that and let me go to the, our next question which will focus more on the consequences for the people and the Pacific nations. So as you said according to the report uh, based on our current foreseen trajectory the intensity and frequency of extreme weather events of sea level rise, global warming, ocean acidification will increase and the limit of 1.5 degrees that was the target agreed by world leaders in Paris in 2015 is likely to be exceeded in the next 10-15 years. Plus all the things that you mentioned in your previous answer, so that's the scenario we will be facing in the near future. So in your opinion, what does this all mean for the Pacific and how could it affect the security and the stability in the region, especially for the most vulnerable people? So in other words, what are some of the short, medium and long-term scenarios for the human security of Pacific people? 
the uh, implications for the uh, impacts uh, for for the consequences of global warming i indicated is very severe and of course has serious implications for security and stability the ipcc stressed that climate change poses a threat to human security in in no uncertain terms indeed this threat to human security has been realized by the pacific leaders by organizations and a lot of people who are working on this issue in the region in 2018 for example the pacific island leaders through the bo declaration affirmed that climate change remains the single greatest threat to the livelihoods security and well-being of the people of the pacific and this issue has been further recognized recently by a resolution on the establishment of a special rapporteur on human rights and climate change so and the special rapporteur is expected to to look at interlinkages between climate change and human rights identify challenges in in the state's implementation of human rights based climate policies and work very closely with the un high commissioner for human rights so i think these um, developments internationally are good indication of the impact or or the implications for security and instability in terms of the pacific talked about the impacts of sea level rise of ocean inundations and and so on and these issues will impact directly on issues like the displacement and relocation of people we already have examples of where pacific people and many most of the pacific people actually live along the coastlines in fact the majority of them they they live on the coastlines their livelihoods is is revolves around the coastal areas the infrastructure like water communications and and so on all all situated on the coastlines so these will have very serious impact on the, the livelihoods and in fact in in some cases where large amounts or large uh, proportions of land get inundated some countries will be forced into situations where people have to migrate so these also impact on the food and water resources the marine resources the terrestrial resources and of course when these resources which which are core to the economic well-being of people is going to directly affect on their economic growth on the health productivity livelihoods and employment it will impact on the national and regional stability and these issues when it affects the economy and the existence will create social and geopolitical tensions most of pacific countries sorry are very exposed to natural disasters and they are not easily insured between 2016 and 2018 for example uh, tropical cyclones have caused a 30% reduction in gdp in, in fiji and about 64% in vanuatu so in terms of the stability and security there are direct threats in fact existential threats to low lying atoll islands some of these are just barely a meter above sea level a recent modeling suggests that by 2100 if nothing is done up to 80% of the land could be underwater so these of course have serious uh, implications in so far as the human security and stability in, in the region Thank you Mahendra for highlighting some of the consequences for the stability and security of the Pacific people. It is very interesting to hear the consequences that climate change will have on and is having already on the security and stability of Pacific people. So yet yeah, interesting and I have to say also very sad to hear about, you know, the possibility of relocation and displacement of people and also the impacts of uh, sea level rise on, you know, loss of land that will lead definitely to 
impacts on the resources and consequently on tensions for those limited resources. So as you mentioned, like Pacific people are extremely depending on, you know, like natural resources and the ocean. So that's why they are the, the most impact from climate change and natural disaster. So thank you for highlighting that. I think it's very interesting for our audience to see that and to hear about the direct consequences. Also, as you mentioned, the existential threat for the Pacific people. So let's go on and let me ask you my last question. With this new IPCC report, it is more apparent than ever that bold and rapid climate action are needed now. In this sense, COP26, starting in November this year, will be the decisive moment to commit and take those actions. So in your opinion, what are the most urgent and effective measures that governments and development partners need to take to address the climate crisis in the Pacific? The uh, Pacific Island countries, in recognition of the their vulnerability and, and fragility um, as large ocean states, have been extremely active and visible in terms of calling for greater actions at the international level. In fact, in spite of their very low emissions, and, and many countries have uh, levels of emissions which are less than a fraction of a percent, they have taken bold actions to try and reduce the dependence on fossil fuels, for example. And one of the clarion calls for the Pacific Island countries right from the Suva Climate Change Declaration in 2015, I alluded to earlier, has been for greater international action so that the temperature is remains below 1.5 degrees centigrade. The opportunity to ensure that the temperature remains below 1.5 degrees is fast disappearing and the countries are vociferous in demanding that countries which are in a position to do so, this is uh, the, the industrialized nations, the wealthier nations, the nations who are actually responsible for the large emissions of greenhouse gases, immediately begin to decarbonize their global economy. That is, invest more in renewable energy, remove the huge subsidies on fossil fuels, a recent report from IMF suggested that up to the United States, $5.2 trillion is actually uh, given as fuel subsidies. And, and these subsidies really should be diverted to the small vulnerable countries so that it can help them adapt to the current impacts which they are actually facing now, as well as the future impacts which they will face, according to the IPCC reports. The human security, of course, should be paramount in these discussions, and the world should try and live up to its claim to ensure that the women and the children, the vulnerable, do not live in the fear of climate change, and they are ensured a sustainable future. In relation to this, the Pacific Island countries have expectations for the forthcoming COP26, which is regarded as, as a very important COP after the Paris meeting in 2015. One of the first things which I think Pacific countries are looking for is to finalize the Paris rulebook. The work on the rulebook began when the Paris Agreement was uh, adopted in 2015. It's been going on for about six years now. So really, the work on the technical aspects of the rulebook, which looks at very specific items uh, like carbon mechanisms, um, how do you report, how do you account for your carbon emissions, what sort of funding and so on provided, should should really be, be uh, finished at this meeting and the implementation process should begin. The Pacific Island countries are also want the emission gaps 
from those with the biggest responsibility should actually take measures to reduce this huge emissions gap. And the responsibility in terms of ensuring social justice, human rights and ecosystem integrity should be paramount. To be able for the Pacific countries to adapt, they need finance. Under the Paris Agreement, $100 billion was promised from 2020 to 2024. This hasn't yet been realized and there's supposed to be new negotiations on, on the finance from 2026 onwards. The Pacific Island countries need a lot more finance for adaptation and also for loss and damage which is another very important issue for the Pacific countries. It's not adaptation. Loss and damage has to do with the loss of tradition, the culture, the existence, which is not enumerated through you know, usual sort of uh, numbers, which is to do with, with just the effect of, of, of cyclone and, and so on. So the countries are, want some actions on adaptation, and this adaptation fund should really uh, be on par with that of mitigation. Thus far, the convention has looked at mitigation as, as a key priority. Whilst this is important because the greenhouse gas emissions must reduce, but given the impacts which the countries are facing, they need their adaptation to be on par, to be given equal treatment and indeed equal money insofar as taking measures to, to deal with the rising cases of the impacts of climate change. One of the other issues which the Pacific country understandably are keen is to promote an oceans agenda. As we have observed, the, the Pacific economies and livelihoods are centered around the oceans, the fisheries, the marine and the ocean systems. And uh, the Pacific countries are pushing for an oceans declaration, which will ensure the conservation and the proper upkeep of the oceans to ensure their long-term sustainability. And finally, uh, the COP26 should recognize the human rights and security dimension of climate change and aim for a socially and gender just equitable society for the Pacific people and communities. Thank you. Thank you, Mahendra, for highlighting this. Totally agree that COP26 will be the decisive moment and we need, we must ensure that human security is considered as a key aspect in the climate change discussions. As we learn today, climate change has a decisive impact on the human security, especially in the Pacific as the most vulnerable region. We do have hope that COP26 could bring some kind of change and the Pacific voice will be heard. And as you said, Pacific countries have been active. They are doing their best, but that's not enough. We need to cut emissions, especially for the big emitters. Thank you again. Mahendra for all of this that you brought up. It was very interesting. I learned a lot and I'm sure our audience learned a lot too. Just let me ask you, where can the, we find more information about you and your work on climate change and security issues? If our audience wants to learn more and I'm sure they will, so just please give them a reference. I can be contacted easily on, on most uh, social media platforms by, by email and uh, my email can be posted on your site. And uh, as I had said, I, I am attached to these two institutions where I spend a bit of time. So feel free, people can feel free to, to communicate to me by, by email, uh, which is uh, kumar.mahend.gmail.com. It's pretty easy. Thank you again, Mahendra. And uh, I usually like to finish our podcast episode with uh, asking our guests if they have a final message for our audience. So if you have any final message for our audience, you already gave a lot to us today. So thank you again for that. But please feel free if you have a final message to our audience. 
I think, well, uh, we ha- as you said, we have probably covered this quite a lot, but, but I think uh, one of the things uh, we all realize when you go forward that the climate change, uh, you know, really requires a very holistic response from all stakeholders in, in nationally, uh, regionally and internationally. And I think this is something which is why the voices of the Pacific at international fora, they have held the moral ground in terms of their sufferings and their demands. And, and it's uh, really look forward to some of the more well-to-do industrialized wealthier countries around the Pacific Rim and in indeed in the world to assist them through what could could become a fairly uh, deep crisis in the next hundred years and 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 basically assist them chart out hope for the next generation thanks again Mahendra couldn't agree more that a holistic approach is required to ensure a sustainable future not only for the Pacific people, but for the entire planet. So thank you again. And this concludes our episode for today. Thank you, Mahendra, for your great insight. And please stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.